Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Well, it's that time of year, always in the spring, big news in the car world, and I want to fill you in on something that is like an inflection point in the vehicle market. And I also have new deals in the cell phone world I want to bring your way So I want you to know this is one of the areas where a monthly can consume a ridiculous amount of monthly spending that you can really attack when I talk about that. And I want to mention something also, an area where people have realized that they're spending too much money is on video streaming. And there's a lot of stuff going on in that area. I mean, Netflix, one of the biggest losers in the stock market recently, because subscriber numbers are actually going down. And so people are consuming less video because they are doing other things. They're they're not hanging around the house as much. And so this is going to be a year, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for you to reduce those expenses. We're going to help you do that if you look at our video streaming guide at Clark.com. So the this weekend, there's going to be a wave of publicity with PR companies working overtime to try to see that as many of the 330 million of us or whatever number of Americans there are know that Monday, the F-150 Lightning is going to start being delivered to customers. And Ford is taking a page out of the playbook of Tesla where they do a big publicity stunt around the initial delivery of a new vehicle. And Ford's doing that with the F-150 Lightning. The F-150 is the most important vehicle sold in the United States. It is a powerhouse brand on its own, really in many ways more powerful than the Ford brand, the parent, itself the f-150 is something that has great brand loyalty to it people have bought it uh, for generations and families f-150 buyers are so brand loyal to the f-150 that when they tire out of one they don't next go to a ram or a chevy silverado they tend to buy another f-150 so ford is basically betting the farm somewhat with a huge push on the F-150 Lightning. And it is really an inflection point because to this point, when you think of electric and you look at the market share, overwhelmingly it's been Tesla and then they also Rands. But this is time that the, the big boys are coming into the game. And the F-150 Lightning from people who have reviewed it so far the reviews have been extraordinary but the news for your wallet pickup truck driver suv driver whatever 
the greatest benefit to your wallet is going to come from bigger vehicles, SUVs, and pickups going electric. As an example, the F-150 Lightning gets an EPA-equivalent miles per gallon rating of 68, 68 miles per gallon. So that Prius that you make fun of that made it to 50 miles an hour on the freeway next to you, that gets 54 miles per gallon. And you're talking about a work truck, an F-150, averaging the equivalent of 68 miles per gallon. Plus, the electric vehicles need like no maintenance. So Ford has bet billions on this. And time will tell, did they build reliability into it? Did they build sufficient range into the F-150 Lightning? But I can tell you, this is where we're headed. The United States is a laggard in the adoption of electric vehicles. And right now, I think 5% of vehicles sold in the United States are fully electric. And that's one-fourth of what it is in the rest of the developed world. And so we are moving this way. And I know that, that we're used to what we're used to. But as you see one parked in the parking lot next to you, see one on the road, as the F-150 Lightnings start to be delivered in quantities where you'll start to see them and it'll be a novelty at first and it'll be routine. Once you know this is where we're going and it's really your wallet's friend, but not in 22. The real action with electric vehicles is really a 23 phenomenon because of the difficulties of building inventory in the vehicle market. As I shared with you recently, used vehicle prices have started to soften after their massive run-up. New vehicle supplies are just marginally better than they were before. It's the used vehicle market that's showing some improvement, but the new vehicle market will definitely improve depending on each automaker. Significant improvement in inventories will occur sometime this year and for the ones that are trailing sometime in 23. But we are returning to a normalized vehicle market, more or less, in a matter of months, not years from here, barring, as I always have to say, with a bold prediction like that, some unexpected event in the world. But you may not decide that your next vehicle is electric. That may be too much of a leap for you. But I can tell you with virtual certainty, your second vehicle from here will certainly, without doubt, be electric just because the price points of the sale prices of the vehicles and the cost of ownership going forward is so much better that that's where we're headed. Now, that's said by somebody who got my first electric vehicle 10 years ago, and it was a pretty abysmal first version of the Nissan LEAF. And to say that it was a pitiful car would not quite encompass it. It was expensive, had poor range. The only thing it had was good acceleration. Defective battery packs galore. And today, the electric vehicles you buy have very good range, generally 250 miles of range to, at the far end, 500 miles of range. And 300 miles plus of range, very common now. And that works for 
pretty much almost every situation. I have driven my electric vehicle, not the Leaf, but the Tesla that I have, I've driven it all over the place. And the interstate system has so many fast chargers along the road that I found it to be no inconvenience at all driving electric. And that will be your experience you'll find moving forward. And this is moving from the pioneer stage through the settler stage. We're moving into the mainstream stage. And I think Krista, who is now with me, I think about a conversation we had the other day in a meeting where we were talking about gas prices and strategizing to give the best help to people with gas prices. And we were having a problem because so many people on our staff have already converted to electric. We were having trouble finding out what gas prices were without looking them up because we didn't have the experience in the meeting of who knew what gas prices they just paid. And your old leaf is still ticking. It's actually in my driveway right now. My kids drive it. It is still a great car. It goes right, about 30 miles total on the total charge. Total on a charge. And your kid's school is 1.1 1 mile. 1 miles away from your home. It's perfect. So it whole week of travel to and from school on that charge. Uh, but generally 30 miles range. Who's going to do that except maybe an, someone riding an electric bike, right? Right. Well, speaking of that, um, I have some questions that go along with that. This is actually a tip from Jim. He says, energy prices and specifically gas prices have been a recurring topic for several months lately and for good reason. While I drive only 10,000 miles per year or so, when I'm on the highway driving nearest the speed limit, I'm normally the slowest driver on the road. Every gas engine gets much less efficient above 65 to 75 miles per hour. If your other podcast listeners are actually worried about spending too much money on gas, I'd suggest you advise folks to just drive a lot slower. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, Jim, you're right. Human behavior being what it is, particularly people who live in congested urban and suburban areas, when there's uh, available blacktop in front of them, they're going to press that pedal and yeah the drop in fuel economy trying to remember the number i think from going 60 miles an hour to 75 miles an hour i think your fuel economy drops 40 percent somewhere in that range so it's completely true this is from Elizabeth. She says, I need Clark's advice on whether to buy a gas, hybrid, or electric car. My current car is a 2011 with 65,000 miles, and I'm looking to buy a new car in the next six months to a year. I'm not sure with the low mileage I drive, what would be a better investment at this time? The additional tax for electric is half my annual gas bill because I only drive about 5,000 miles a year. Please let those of us in a, the low mileage category know what would be best long term. Well, Elizabeth, first of all, you keep a vehicle a very, very long time. And given a choice in your case, looking at buying a vehicle, and you said six to 12 months, I mean, if you were to wait till next year, as I was just talking about, about availability of vehicles getting better, the sweet spot for you would actually be a hybrid not necessarily an electric, unless there was a deal on an electric where you still qualified for the $7,500 federal tax credit, plus whatever state tax credit might be available in your state. If there was an electric vehicle that was roughly equivalent in price, then at the mileage you drive, an electric vehicle would work very well for you. 
but you're probably going to find next year that a hybrid that will get great fuel economy will serve you very well for at least a decade moving forward. You know, we're not suddenly, this isn't a light switch thing. We're not going from all gasoline powered to all electric vehicles like that. This is going to be a full generational process. So there are way stations along the way and a hybrid or even something that's a little step further, what's known as a plug-in hybrid, where if you drive 30 or less miles a day, you're running as an electric vehicle. And then beyond that, it just automatically switches to being like a traditional hybrid gas electric. That could be a reasonable choice next year as well. But again, the price point of the purchase of the vehicle is going to be important. I'll give you an example. One of the most popular hybrids before we went into all the crazy shortages was the RAV4 hybrid that you could get in the upper 20s before all the supply chain disruptions. And that was so much cheaper than the typical electric that the RAV4 hybrid was a superior choice if it's just about dollars and cents than buying an electric vehicle. That was then. When we look at next year, all bets are off because we don't know yet what the true marketplace prices are going to be. In fact, you ought to ask me the question a year from now, and I can give you a targeted answer on that. This is from Rick in Pennsylvania. I have twin daughters that are currently full-time students at college. This upcoming July, they will be turning 26 years old and will no longer be eligible to be covered under my employer health insurance. They don't work and they don't have any kind of income. What would you recommend for them to do to try and get some sort of medical coverage for a cheap premium or better yet, maybe a federal funded insurance such as Medicaid? So you said something really important, Rick. You said that they are both full-time college students. Most every college in the United States offers a student health insurance policy. People that are younger, unless they have a pre-existing chronic illness, tend to not have a lot of medical problems. And so these policies tend to be really inexpensive that are offered to college students. College students, as a general rule, are a very, very favorable demographic for insurers to underwrite. So buying it from the college that your daughters attend, and I don't know if they're the same college or not, but buying it from the college is the best course of action for anybody with a full-time college student. And coming up, I want to tell you, there are some new cell phone plans that are getting friendlier and friendlier and friendlier for your wallet. If you are a creature of habit and have stayed in the same plan you're with, I know you're paying too much. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The cost of individual and family cell phone plans keeps going down, down, down if you get out there and you shop the market. There's a new low-price leader for family plans 
and it's one that does not promote itself. And there's a specific business reason for it, but it's Google Fi, which is the cell phone operation of Google. So for a family plan, you pay 80 bucks total for four people, unlimited talk, text, and data. And no frills kind of plan. That's all it does pretty much. Has some hot spot to it, but that's uh, that's well, I say that's it. That's pretty much it. But what you get with it is you get unlimited data in the US, Canada, and Mexico. And you get five gigs of hotspot a month. But for a lot of people travel outside the United States or at least outside of North America is not part of your normal routine in life. And so this is quite a deal. Google Fi is using technology very similar to what the cable companies that have become very price competitive on individual and family cell phone plans is they're backboning hotspots, Wi-Fi, and then traditional cellular, knowing that 80% of the time, the average American cell phone user is at a spot where they trust the Wi-Fi where they are. So now, more and more plans are available that know that 80% rule and know that they are actually incurring basically zero cost as you are using your cell phone and any function on it where you have Wi-Fi or you're on somebody's hotspot or whatever. But really, Wi-Fi has been the key, the Wi-Fi backbone at Trusted Wi-Fi. Those of you that are customers of Comcast for home internet, Xfinity, they like to use that brand naming now for it. Part of your monthly fee is permission you've given Comcast to use your internet connection you're paying for to provide cellular service to its cellular customers. So as somebody is in a neighborhood, they may be drawing on your Wi-Fi in order to use their cell phone, but that's why the prices are so much lower. Individual plans have been going down, down, down. And particularly if you are someone who doesn't need unlimited data, I've been telling you recently about all the inexpensive plans available when you don't need unlimited data. Generally, $10 a month or $15 a month are the two most popular price points for that. We have a guide at Clark.com that walks you through how to find for your particular circumstance the best service available to you. Cell phone carriers are terrified. Uh, Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile are terrified of all the new cheaper plans that have come into the marketplace. And that's why they're dangling the free phones at you or the extra cheap phones. But remember, you only get the free or cheap if you stay with them either two more years or three more years 
And so they're doing this game of distracting you. Look over here. Look over here. Not over here. Trying to get you to look not at what your monthly bill is with them that may be twice what you need to pay today versus the free phone and the whole free phone thing. What a joke. By the way, Google Fi does work on most iPhones. But if you are an Android person, they're offering huge subsidies on some of the best of the Android phones in the marketplace where they're just absorbing the cost. You buy the phone at the discount from them up front and you own that phone free and clear from that point forward. So a lot of choice. Go compare plans on our plan guide and know that it may really be worth it to go through the initial pain to pay off whatever phone you've got and go shop in the marketplace for the much, much better deals now available for individuals, couples, and families. And Krista, it's time for some questions from you. And I see we're starting with one that we've been getting deluged with complaints about, and that's the service meltdowns from JetBlue. Yes, uh, got a few in from people that were pretty alarming, and this is one of them. Jeff in Virginia says, my family and I booked a cruise We had airline tickets with JetBlue scheduled the day before the cruise left. We got to the airport three hours before our plane was supposed to take off, and it was delayed by 30 minutes. 30 minutes went by and then delayed by an hour, then another hour. This went on for 16 plus hours. We were told that the plane was at the airport and boarding was imminent multiple times, but the plane never materialized. After 16 plus hours, they canceled our flight at 1 a.m., There were no other flights or other ways we or our travel agent could find to get us to the port in time we missed our cruise. It was devastating to all of us. I now can't get customer no service by phone, email, or chat to reply to me about getting a refund. Luckily, my family punted and are having a truly wonderful staycation. How can I proceed? Jeff, we've heard every angle on the JetBlue thing, and I've now had the opportunity to have off-the-record conversations with three different JetBlue pilots. I go up, I see them in uniform, and I go up and talk to them in airports. And they are embarrassed, they are furious, and they can't believe that JetBlue, in the midst of not having its service act together at all, is wasting management energy and attention on trying to buy Spirit, which any industry analyst is like, what in the world is JetBlue thinking? And then their response to people has been impossible. You can't reach people at JetBlue. If you do reach them, they say, oh, we're really sorry. Here's $50 of future travel. I mean, come on. Come on. I mean, this is a situation that requires 100% management focus at JetBlue. In your case, What you need to do immediately in every person who has been stranded by any of these, it's not just JetBlue, uh, Southwest had a problem a while back, American had a problem, Delta had a problem, I I could start, uh, Spirit has had a problem, I could start naming virtually every airline has had some kind of service meltdown because their staff short. And as demand has come back, the scheduling people put way too many flights into the schedules and they didn't have enough staff to fly them. And then you have any kind of weather problem, they're done. You file a complaint, Jeff, at dot.gov. JetBlue will need to respond to that. And at the very least, they owe you your money back. But the other thing, what credit card did you use 
to pay for the cruise and pay for the flight. There's a little known thing with travel. The credit card you use to travel when you have a flight interruption, something, a big disruption in travel, the credit card you use within a period of time, you may be able to file a claim with them and you may be able to recoup some of that sunk cost money from that cruise you didn't get to take, depending on the credit card you used. I noticed in the last two months, there have been all these service meltdowns at the airlines. I've gotten notices from three different credit cards telling me that, hey, you know, if your flight gets all messed up, here's what you get from us. And I thought that was very clever mm-hmm. marketing for the credit card companies to be doing. And that may be a source of compensation for you in addition to whatever ends up happening with JetBlue. And I'm really, really sorry, Jeff, for you and all the others we've heard from about JetBlue, which was at one time the most respected airline in the United States. And as my brother says, people are policy, management is everything. And JetBlue obviously is a rudderless airline right now with just a complete lack of sophisticated leadership that has led to these kind of problems. And I've always loved JetBlue, so this is hard for me to say, Krista, but they got to get it together. Can I ask one other thing? Yeah. Your advice traditionally for people cruising, domestic, get there a day before, Which international, two days. Right. Jeff, so had, now, Jeff had done it exactly. exactly right. So is your advice now maybe two days before? Do we have to go there I, with I all these I don't airline wanna, I don't want to overdo it. Okay. I mean, what happened to Jeff is an extremely terrible situation where he did everything right, booking to go to the cruise port the day before. I don't want the lesson to be that, oh, no, the airlines are so messed up, you need to go two days before and have the extra expense of hotel and all that. This is hopefully an outlier, and the airlines need to grow up and cut back their schedules to the point where they have schedules that they can reliably fly with the number of trained pilots, flight attendants, and ground personnel that they actually have on hand instead of treating us like chopped liver. This is from Pedro in Arizona. My wife and I currently each have our own financial advisor, and yes, they are both fiduciaries. We contribute to the same exact amount to each. I suggested we keep both to see if one's investment strategy becomes clearly better than the others, at which point we would merge with the better of the two. My wife recently switched jobs, and we were considering splitting her old 401k 50-50 with both advisors. It's a larger sum of money, so she has a bad feeling about splitting it. Would it be okay to keep on this path and split it? Is it time to merge to just one advisor? And if we are to merge and leave one, how do we choose if they're both very close to having achieved the same amount? So Pedro, um, first of all, I'm very impressed with how you've gone through this process where you're giving two people like an on-the-job audition, if you will. But the thing is, whoever performs best in a short number of years isn't necessarily who will perform for you over the long haul. It's really more about who you connect with the most when you're dealing with a fiduciary financial advisor. That's somebody who legally is compelled to do only what's in your best interest. It's more a thing of 
who is asking you the right questions, not necessarily about asset allocation, but what your goals are, how they're going to help you achieve those goals. Thinking through the things like, do you have your assets properly protected and have you figured out who's going to get them at the time you were to pass away or one of you passes away and the other is still around? How are you going to handle that? It's more about the comprehensive stuff, Pedro, than it is just simple they asset allocate this way, this other one asset allocates that way. So I, I think you've obviously saved enough money as a couple that if you want to leave it with two advisors competing against each other for even years to come till it becomes really clear that you prefer the style, personality, and connection to one versus the other, I think that's fine. But don't go just with performance because performance over a shorter period of time is not a true indicator of how somebody's strategy will work over the years, over the decades. Um, I know that it could also be true that if you put the larger amount with one person, you could get a discount on the yearly fee. That's the only thing. I should have said that, is that in the industry now, there are what are called price breakpoints with a lot of fiduciary financial advisory services, where the more assets you have with one, the lower you pay as a percent of asset fee. And that is a really valid point. And then Alan in California says, Clark explained regular bond pricing during inflation. Can he explain why inflation protection bond ETF prices are going down while the economy is producing inflation? Yeah, inflation protected securities funds are ones that are designed to get you the return of inflation over time. What's happened when you look at a inflation-protected fund or you look at an inflation-protected ETF is in the short term, there are all kinds of market expectations about what the inflation rate is really going to settle at. So in the short term, a lot of inflation-protected funds, particularly ETFs, which are traded at a rapid rate, have had significant temporary drops in value. But that's not the purpose of having, in my book, an inflation-protected securities fund or ETF. It is a long-term play, and don't worry so much about the short-term hit you're suffering from because it all has to do with inflation expectations and where those funds are priced and those ETFs are right now. If, on the other hand, it's all about trying to keep the price fixed on those, you should at least be putting the ten grand a year per family member into the Series I savings bonds where you know you'll hold your value and you'll simply get the rate of inflation in those. And I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us for this episode. If you would like one-on-one advice, that is a free service we have offered for nearly 30 years now. The Team Clark Consumer Action Center will answer your questions for uh, available 30 hours each week. I had to think through the math. You can see how it all works at clark.com slash CAC.